James 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 500 years ago, there were two theologians, one a German, one a Frenchman, who were deeply concerned by the teaching of their church. Their church taught that you have to do good works to earn your salvation. The problem with that teaching is, is, is twofold. In the first place, if you have even a smidgen of self-awareness and honesty, you know you can't do those good works to earn your salvation. In fact, daily we increase our debt of sin, which puts an enormous gulf between God and us. The teaching that you have to do good works to earn salvation is a religion of despair. It'll just send you into absolute despair. The second problem with that teaching is that it robs God of his glory. I'll take just one passage from Romans 5, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Paul says, while we were sinners, we haven't done a thing. We're sinners. And yet God so loved us that he gave his son to pay for our sins. To say to God, well, you know, I, I appreciate the gift of your son, but I'd like to point out what, what, I, what I've done. I'd like to show you my good works is an insult to God, and he won't take it. As Paul says in Galatians 5, you go down that road, and you don't have Jesus Christ. The moment you start to talk about your goodness, your accomplishments, Jesus Christ is out the door in your life. Now, thankfully, these, these two theologians were not only aware that the theology of the church had a huge problem, but they were illuminated by the Holy Spirit to turn to Scripture, particularly Paul's letter to the Romans, where Paul outlines in the opening chapters that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. See an example of that in the beginning of chapter 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we're right with God only through faith. Just to be clear what we're talking about, this faith in Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, as we talked about it this morning, then our sins are laid on him, and it goes to the cross for those sins, and his righteousness or obedience is laid on us. And 
God looks at us as, as if we'd never sinned and as if we ourselves had fulfilled all the obedience of God's law. That teaching blows your mind away. These two theologians were, were just astounded by how good God is, how, how loving and gracious to undeserving people. By now you've figured out who these two men are. It's Martin Luther, John Calvin. And by God's grace, they brought about a reformation. Churches where the basic teaching is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we mentioned that these two men found their inspiration in Paul's writing to the Romans. And of course, they, they kept reading the Bible. Luther and Calvin were geniuses. They were brilliant. They read the Bible in the original language. But when they came to James, they were baffled, particularly Martin Luther. They read what we just read in James 2, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Martin Luther was so deeply disturbed that he wrote about the letter of James that it is an epistle of straw. In other words, it's got no substance. That mangles the scriptures and thereby opposes Paul and all scripture. So Luther read James and he says, well, well, Paul got it right. And it was magnificent. Saved by grace alone, not by works. And then James comes along and says, no, 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 no. Not just faith, but faith and works. It is indeed a, a baffling uh, mystery that we're going to look at this afternoon. But I'll give you a, a couple of hints. Even Martin Luther himself, who struggled with James, once wrote, we are justified by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Do you get that? Justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. There's something that comes with it. There's another old saying, you know, among Christians, don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Don't just talk about your faith and your religion. Walk it out, work it out, show it in your lifestyle. So we summarize our text in this way. Walk the talk. We'll see that talk is cheap. Talk needs walk. And talk is even what demons do. Now, before we do anything else, brothers and sisters, look at, let's look at this, what looks like a dilemma between Paul and, and James. Is Paul saying you are justified by faith alone and forget about works? And whereas James is saying, no, 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 it's not just faith, but it's faith and works. Are they saying different things? And the answer is absolutely not. They're on the same page. They have the same message. Just consider Paul. We, we refer to Romans 3 and quoted from Romans 4, where Paul says that Abraham was justified through faith alone. But he continues in chapter 6, where he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And then he continues in verses 12 through 14. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin 
as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You see what Paul's saying here? He says, there, uh, my, my concern is that when you hear the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, that you might get the idea, works, they don't matter. Obedience doesn't matter. In fact, I can sin a whole lot more, and then God's grace will abound all the more. We call this today easy believism. Just believe. doesn't matter how you live your life. Paul says, how in the world can you say that? You died with Christ and rose with him. You have faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That changes your life. You hate sin. You fight sin. You strive more and more to, to love God and love your neighbor. And that is a consistent message throughout Paul. Faith is ne never alone. It always shows itself and works. Read, for instance, Ephesians. First three chapters outline God's electing love, his grace. And the last three chapters, Paul says, now, how does it look like in a life of good works, of obedience? And he spells it out. Also think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, where Paul makes really clear that to be a Christian, to be redeemed by grace alone, means that your life is transformed into a life of good works. You don't do good works to earn salvation. You do good works because you're saved and you're thankful. And that's, that's exactly the same message that James has. He's got the same concern as Paul. He's, he's worried about people who, who talk about their faith, who belong to the church. They got all the right answers, but it doesn't show in their lifestyle. Theologically sound but in their lifestyle, you cannot see that they are a Christian. James makes clear already at the end of chapter 1, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion is what you do with your faith. It's so easy to be a, an armchair theologian, to sort of slide through your religion. Oh, you know your Bible. You can debate endlessly theological points, but it doesn't show the way you treat your wife or husband, what you look at on the internet or social media, or how you care about people in the congregation who are lonely, maybe the widows and the orphans. James says, look, you got to walk the talk. You have a good theology? Well, that theology better have a good hold on you as well and work out in the way that you think, speak, and, and act. That, of course, is a, a relevant message for us today as well. And we're not just talking adults. We're talking our teenagers, our boys and girls, I think our, our young people recognize and will fully admit that we live in a, a time of prosperity. We have pretty much all the things that we want, and we have TV and the internet and social media. 
Young people can spend hours a day on, on social media and enjoy it. But I ask you, does it make you a better person, a better Christian? All those hours in social media, does that make you love Jesus Christ more? Does it make you purer sexually in your thinking? Does it make you say, you know, there's a widow in my congregation. There's a single mother. I, I need to spend time with them. I need to get involved and help people. I don't think so. I talk to widows. They're lonely. They tell me their grandchildren aren't even visiting them, let's say, in the Emmanuel home. But we're still good Christians, right? I go to church. I know my Bible. I go to study society. I'm a good Christian, right? No, you're not. That's absurd. If you say, this is what I believe, and it doesn't show in attitude, in words and deeds, that faith is useless, that faith is dead. Real faith, living faith, faith that says Jesus died for me and I died with him, shows itself in so many ways, in love for God and love for our neighbor. Luther also understood that, even though he struggled with the letter to James. It was the early days. It's 500 years ago. They didn't, have every, they didn't understand everything that we understand today. But Luther said, we are justified through faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Faith always shows in the way that you live. So there's no contradiction between Paul and James Got to say, James just has a delicious way of spelling it out. And that's probably why the letter to James of James is one of the most quoted and loved portions of Scripture. But now the point. What's the clearest and most obvious way of showing faith in works? I'd like to quote from Galatians 5 or 6, and I'm using here another translation. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The greatest work of faith is love. Love for God, love for our neighbor. And James spelled that out at the end of chapter 1 when he said true religion is a religion that has love for orphans and widows. Also the beginning of chapter 2, James talks about how we look at the rich and the poor. We tend to show favoritism to, to the rich. Christians don't do that. Living faith doesn't do that. Living faith also looks at the poor, the downtrodden, and has a heart for them. It is in this context that James writes in, in our text, verses 14 through 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's powerful how he opens and closes that section. To say you have faith and doesn't show in your works 
That's no faith at all. That's dead. It's useless. And we might struggle a little bit with that terminology, dead faith. Is that even logical? Well, just think of Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, where he says, the seed is sown, it, it lands on the path, on rocky ground, shallow soil, where there's weeds, and initially it may spring up, but quickly it withers and dies. Well, that seed is the word. It's the word of God. And that seed is, is, is proclaimed, and some people, you know, they, they grasp it initially very enthusiastically, and they want to talk about it. They're excited about it. They sit in the worship services. But it doesn't really last. It doesn't grab their heart. It withers and dies particularly because their lifestyle doesn't change. And that's, that's James' point. You can have people who belong to the church, who sit under the preaching every Sunday, read their Bible at home, but if it doesn't affect your life, how you think, how you speak, how you act, that's not faith. It's useless. It's dead. And James gives a, a graphic example, gripping example that we really can work with today. It was only a few days ago. We were in the minus 40s here. Now suppose one of those mornings you had to go to downtown Edmonton, you had a meeting, maybe a lawyer, an accountant, business person, you had to meet somebody down there, you took your warm car out of your warm garage, drove down there, got out of your car, bundled up and walking on the sidewalk and you see this guy sitting there on, in the snow, minus 40, not properly clothed, you know this guy's in deep trouble. As you get closer, you realize you know him. It's George from the congregation. Hope there's no George here. But it's George from the congregation. You go, oh, George, my goodness, you're, you're freezing. You're hungry. You're, you're exposed. You're going to die if you stay here. I feel so bad for you. I, I really hope your day changes. I really hope things go better for you. But I, I got to go because I got a meeting. Bye for now. You have allowed a brother in the Lord to sit there without food, without clothing, without saying, here, here's some gloves, here's some money, go to a restaurant. You've done nothing at all except wish him well. What good is that, says James? He says, it is absolutely useless. No Christian does that. No person who has died with Christ and risen again, will do that to somebody in such desperate need. Real faith will do something. Not just talk, 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 but walk and do something for that person. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that's, I mean, just, just how much does God expect from me? How, how far do I have to go with this helping people, loving them in a, a meaningful way? Well, James continues writing, uh, after our text in the verses 20 through 22. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, 
and faith was completed by his works. Now, how far was Abraham willing to go to put his faith in action? God says, sacrifice your son. And Abraham pulled out the knife and the wood and the fire starter and was ready to offer up his son, kill his son, if that's what God wanted him to do. A Christian never asks, how much is enough? Like, what, what would I have to do in this particular situation to meet any criteria that God has for a Christian? You don't ask that question. You ask yourself, what can I do? How much can I do? How far can I go to show love to a person who is in need? And notice that in the line after that, this is not our text, but it's relevant. Uh, James writes, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Actually, James is saying two things here. First, he's saying, you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Stop. Period on that, on that sentence. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was saved not by what he did, but because he believed. But now that he came to faith and Jesus Christ took him on that amazing journey of dying with him on the cross and rising up to, to be a new person born again, now that faith starts to be active and show itself in a life of, of good works. If, if your life is not showing love to God and love to your neighbor in a meaningful way, it just goes to show you're not saved. You don't have Jesus in your life. Because if you did, it would show. Going back to the example of, of James, we see that a living faith has an eye for the needs of one another. And the Lord knows there's enough needs in our own church, our own church communities. We have our widows, our widowers, the single parent, the young family struggling with a, a, a newborn. We have strangers. We have people who come from different walks of life and sit here with us in the pew. There is so much need in our own midst to look at people who may be lonely, who may feel on the fringe, and to be able to reach out to them, to love them and to help them in some meaningful way. Not to raise a painful subject, but COVID, time of COVID. I saw the seniors in my own congregation. There's a lot in Providence. A bunch of them in a manual home. Nobody's allowed to visit them. I saw them visibly age in just a couple of months. They were robust. They had color. They turned ashen gray. It looked as if they were smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and a whole bottle of vodka. Loneliness was tearing them apart. But one brother who's now with the Lord, he said to me, every month, there's a lady in the congregation who sends me a card. And he says, you won't believe how special that makes me feel. A card with a message 
that she cares for me, this old guy in a manual home, and quoting something from Scripture was, was life-transforming. You know, we, we might not, all of us might not be the kind of person who just heads over to a manual home or phones a widow in the congregation and says, I'm coming over to have, have a coffee with you. But you can write a card. You can send a text. You can send a message. Or you could offer to shovel the snow in the wintertime, cut the grass, get a few guys together on a Saturday, redo the roof. There are so many ways to look around in our own congregation, those who are shut in, those who are lonely, those who, who need some friendship and some help. There's so many ways that we can, we can do that. And the wider community, that, that's true as well. You know, we have mustard seed here in, in the city. We have Cross Cancer Institute. Do you know how places like that thrive on volunteers? You go to the Cross Cancer Institute for the first time. It's, it's frightening. Where do you go? What's going to happen? There's a volunteer there who meets you at the door and says, I'll show you. I'll take you. And it makes all the difference. There are suicide hotlines. There's pregnancy consulting agencies. There are so many ways that in our own community we can be involved as children of God who show love for those who are hurting, who are in terrible need and might make a desperate mistake without your help. These are things that we need to think about, also our young people and our children, to think about and pray about what can I do to show faith in action to people who are around me. Now at this point, James anticipates an objection as we see in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now theologians are all, all over the, the map when it comes to interpreting these lines. Uh, people don't seem to really understand what James is saying and I'm sure not suggesting that I know better than anybody else, but I, I do know James' message. James' message is you can't just have faith. It doesn't stand alone. It always works itself out in actions. So I think what James is doing here, he's setting up a, a hypothetical, an imaginary situation where somebody is, is you know, positioning and saying, Look, you know, there's two kinds of Christians. Some are really into theology. They have faith. They know their stuff. And other Christians are more action-oriented. Now, I've never seen a picture of James. I have no idea what he looks like. I think he was probably bald. Because he must have torn his hair out listening to people talk that way. Seriously? You think there's two kinds of Christians? He says, you, you think that you can know your Bible and say, I have faith and that's enough? And you can't show it in your life? You can't show it? You ain't got it. You don't have works? You don't have faith. It's nonsense to think any other way. I will show you my faith, not by saying I have it, but show it in the way that I live. My attitudes, my words to people, my actions towards others. This is something that our Lord Jesus Christ also made clear in Matthew 25 
when he talks about the day of judgment, when he will return, and who he will take into his kingdom. Who receives the glorious inheritance? He says, these. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then he says in verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. A living faith that shows itself in works, that genuinely cares and loves for people in the congregation and in the wider community, whatever we do, we're doing it to Christ. And of course, in a, in a very beautiful way, because our Lord Jesus Christ died so that we might be freed from our sins and born again. When we in our lives show faith in action, we show that Jesus abides in me. I abide in him. He's real. He's real to me, real in my life, and the things that I'm doing, I do because he saved me. He transformed my life. This is what he recreated me for. So you can't just talk about your faith. You need to show it in your walk of life. It brings us to our final point. In, in case there's any doubt about whether faith can stand all alone without works, James adds in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you, will, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. I think we'll all agree that if you believe that God is one, that's faith. That's believing something. The devil believes that. Theologically, he's pretty savvy. He's also orthodox. He knows who God is. He knows everything about God. The way he tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, you know, there, there on the mountain, the temple, in the desert, he knew exactly who he was dealing with. He knows who God is. And he shudders because he doesn't love God. He doesn't want to serve God. But he's also terrified because he knows God in his power can take him down. In the same way, to say, I have faith. I know what the truth is. I know who God is. Without actually loving him and embracing him and living for him. That's not real faith. And at, at, at best... You shudder in terror at the thought you don't belong to him on the final day. The worst case scenario, scenario is you don't even care. It's so important that we possess good theology, but that theology had also better possess us in such a way that we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. It's very interesting that in the next chapter, chapter 3, we read about ministers and warnings to ministers. If there's anybody who, who knows their theology and can talk the talk, it's ministers. They're, they're savvy. They, they know their, their stuff. There's also tremendous danger that, that a minister enjoys, you know, the recognition for preaching, for, for knowing stuff without it really transforming his life. He needs to shudder like 
Satan himself because he's not right with God. And that has a, that has a message for all of us as, as teachers, as office bearers, as parents, leaders in the community. Examine yourself. Is it just that you know who God is? That you sit under the preaching every Sunday? Or does it seize you? Does it grasp you? Does it pull you in to know Jesus as Lord and Savior so that you genuinely die with him and rise with him to a new life that shows love to God and love for our neighbor? How do we know, brothers and sisters, that we are on the right path. I find our text kind of scary because I know for myself how many times I fall short. How can we come to that point in our life that faith is alive and shows itself in the way that we live? Brothers and sisters, the answer is not hard. And you don't have to go far. You don't have to go to a mountaintop to find it or the deepest, darkest valley. As it says in Romans 10, it's right there on the pages of Scripture, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, earlier in chapter 2, James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he says that means don't show favoritism. So there's two kinds of people at the beginning of the chapter, the rich and the poor. Who's the rich man? Jesus Christ. Who's the poor man? We're the poor man. He's rich because he's the son of God who sat with the father in heaven. We're poor, sitting in the dirt, on the ground because we're sinners, alienated from God. But Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, came into this world, and sat down in the dirt. He became poor, says in Isaiah 53, he became so ugly and repulsive that people wouldn't even look at him. Why did he do that? Why did he become poor? To take our sins upon himself and to die for those sins that he might raise us up as children of God, heirs of life everlasting. The rich became poor that the poor, we sinners, might become rich. Thankfully, he was also raised from the dead and he's rich again as he's seated in heaven where we will be with him eternally. So when we ask the question, how can I be sure? How can I be that kind of Christian that's not just somebody who listens to the word of God and reads the Bible now and then, but that it seizes me and, and transforms my life? It's all about seeing Jesus and your relationship with him. And it's good that from time to time, we take a quiet moment and we go to Golgotha. You can, you can go there if you like, in your mind, in your heart. Go there to Golgotha and see Jesus nailed to the cross, bleeding, dying, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because this incredibly rich person, the Son of God, became poor as he hung there for all our sins. And then we say to ourselves, it should have been me. I should be on that cross. Those are my sins that he bears. This is my Lord. This is my Savior. And if you could, 
Never mind the blood, the mucus, the sweat, the tears. Lean forward and kiss him. Kiss the son and say, this is my God, my Lord, my Savior. Anybody who knows that, anybody who feels that, anybody who has Jesus in his or her life in that way will naturally want to live as a child of God, to die with Christ to sin, rise up to new righteousness and holiness that shows itself in a real way as we love God and we love the people who are all around us. Amen.